This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. A few notes with regard to the elections. We have, of course, the final results for all of our local elections, and there's no surprise here, as we reported yesterday. Pat Kaylane was elected. The margin of victory, I think, is surprising, just an overwhelming victory for Sheriff Kaylane. Well, not so surprising given that the other candidate was a write-in. Well, the, the write-in is, of course, is a huge obstacle. Uh, the numbers, however, from, I think, from uh, Sheriff's point of view, the Sheriff's point of view were impressive. Also, uh, Tara Jacobs is indeed the governor's counselor from our District 8 and defeated uh, Mr. Uh, Comerford, no relationship to Senator Comerford, although he got, a, I thought, a surprisingly large number of votes. Um, and, well, that's a, that is a two-year term, and Tara Jacobs will be our governor's counselor. Questions one and four both passed. Uh, not overwhelmingly, but they both passed. Uh, question four, of course, the uh, retention of the Work and Family Mobility Act. And question one, the question of whether or not Massachusetts would pass the fair share amendment to tax on income, adjusted gross income, over $1 million a year. For all guests here today, I'm sorry if you have to pay more, but hey, that's how it goes. Okay, we have a few smiles here. No, no one making over a $1 million this year. Okay. So I think also we should note that uh, Maura Healy got a lot of national publicity for being elected governor, uh, but she's, it's kind of like the familiarity of those who uh, are part of our community, and she's been our uh, attorney general for so long. It, didn't, it, it, I, it is, I, I think, an important milestone in Massachusetts, our first woman elected governor and our first lesbian uh, governor, and it's gotten a lot of national attention. And I said, oh, yes, this is a big deal. I forgot it was a big deal. I think the first time I was introduced to Maura Healy, somebody, as an aside, said, this is the future governor of Massachusetts back when she was running for attorney general. So this is something that the politicos on the Democratic side have definitely been pushing for for years now. And meanwhile, in the national elections are still undecided. And I still have this paranoia that the Republicans could win the House, which seems more probable than not, and that they could actually also win the Senate, which would be a horrifying development. The issue will turn the on what is the election result for the Senate in Arizona and Nevada and Georgia. And we'll have to wait for Georgia as there's a runoff that will happen in early December. So the anxiety in Ajuda can last for weeks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I say let's, let's reduce our anxiety and focus on some really positive news here in the Valley. This Sunday, November 13th at 4 o'clock, there will be a room dedication ceremony for the Media Education Community Meeting Room. It will be named in honor of Francis Crowe, Greg Speeder, and Marty Nathan, in attendance at 4 o'clock on Sunday at the Media Education Foundation, that's 60 Masonic Street here in Northampton, there will be State Senator Joe Comerford, State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shara. The event is open to all. Light refreshments will be served. Again, this is the dedication for the Media Education Foundation Community Meeting Room, which will be named in honor of Francis Crowe, Greg Speeder, and Marty Nathan, and we have with us in the studio today to help 
orient us and help us understand and appreciate the importance of the community meeting room and the people for whom it is named. We have with us Sut Jolly, who is a professor of communications at UMass Amherst, and most importantly for us today is here in his capacity as the founder and executive director of the Media Education Foundation. We also have with us Betsy Speeder. Betsy worked for the Department of Mental Health as the director of Child and Adolescent Services before she retired. She was married to Greg Speeder, who died in 2012. Also with us is Elias Fratkin, professor, recently retired professor of anthropology at Smith College, and here today significantly as the spouse of the late Marty Nathan, to whom he was married for some 37 years as well. Betsy, 36 years with Greg, and Elliot, 37 years with Marty. I want to hear about your relationships, and I want to hear you share with our listeners the amazing political and social justice work that both of them did during their lives. I'd like to start, though, with Sujali, who is the founder and executive director of the Media Education Foundation. Tell us about the history and the revitalization of the community meeting room, and tell us why it is named in, in honor of these three individuals. Sut? Thanks. Um, people most probably remember uh, that the community meeting room used to exist at the Media Education Foundation after we bought the old fire station in 2003 and revamped it and uh, we, made the, we made our meeting room available for um, any group that was you know, aligned with our mission to be able to use for free. And for nine years, it was used extensively. Some, some weeks, it was used six days of, um, six days of the week. So there were, there were literally scores of groups that used it, and you know, the space was it's pretty large. Um, it was free, it is, and it still will be free. It has a, a state-of-the-art projection unit in there. Uh, and I've, I've, I've upgraded that now. Um, in 2014, we sold the first floor of the, of the, of the fire station uh, to Woodstock Cafe, and they converted the community meeting room into something else, and so it disappeared along with that. Uh, a few couple of years ago, um, just before COVID, an opportunity arose to re-rent the room and to reopen it, and I took it, um, and so we've been getting the room ready in fact, the room was ready in May of 2020, <laughs> just as COVID hit. And so it has remained empty for a couple of years um, while we've been paying rent. Um, but now we seem to be uh, in a post, kind of in a post-COVID state. And I think people are eager and anxious to meet again, uh, to be in community again, and to be able to organize face-to-face, -face, and I hope that uh, the room will once again perform the function that it did uh, that it did before. Could you explain to us how you got the room back? I understand that space had been taken over, in effect, by Woodstar, obviously a business here in downtown Northampton who we love a lot, but uh, the loss of the Media Education Foundation community room was a real loss. I would just like to, a little clarification on how you got the space back. <laughs> Well, uh, the Woodstock Cafe, you know, bought the first floor and they converted the old community room into office space, which they rented to um, to, to local to lawyers. Um, uh, a few years ago, the people that had the lease lease for it wanted to get out of the lease, and I just thought it was a great opportunity to be able to take the space back and to and to make it part of the community again, uh, as it always was. 
Now, the name of the community meeting room will be the, well, tell us who, what the name of the meeting room will be, and then we're going to talk about those three individuals. Um, when the meeting room was, when we, when we first had the meeting room, it was ed, uh, dedicated to Francis Crow. <coughs> um, in fact, uh, Amy Goodman came and did a, a, a ceremony in 2009 that dedicated the room to Francis. Uh, but obviously, when the room closed, the name went along with it. So when I was going to reopen it up, I, I wanted to kind of open up the people we honored with that as well. Because Francis was obviously fantastic, but there's, there's a lot of other people especially in the local area here. Um, and we had had very close relationships with, uh, with Greg Speeder, with the National Priorities Project, and we'd also worked with Marty Nathan on a number of different things. In fact, I, initially, I was gonna, initially the name was going to be Francis Crow, Greg Speeder, and Marty passed away uh, more recently than that, and I just wanted to, to make sure that we added her to it. Okay, we're going to hear about uh, Greg, and we're going to hear about Marty in just a minute. Why don't you take a minute for us, for those of our listeners, and say, okay, Francis Crow, I know the name, but I don't really know a lot about Francis. Help us out here. Sit. Uh, well, I'm not sure I'm the best person for it. I think other people would know. But most people most probably know Francis as the great anti-war activist. <laughs> Uh, um, in in town, uh, she was. In fact, she, she actually. I wouldn't say she was anti-war. She was pro-peace. The peace was always going to be the answer. Um, and um, you know, she was involved in uh, the draft resistance movement in the 1960s, which is why I think when she first got involved in politics, and has been involved in progressive um, causes ever since. Um, she was famous for her driving back and forth from Northampton to Amherst and picking up young men who were hitchhiking during the Vietnam War and helping them understand their options with regard to the draft that was ongoing at that time. She was then the longtime director of the Western Massachusetts Office of the American Friends Service Committee. She was extremely active in uh, anti-nuclear work and uh, peace, peace groups. She was an inspiration to all of us. And lived to be 100 years old, and she was still active in her last weeks of life. She quite astounding. The woman was quite astounding. Uh, I did have the great honor of representing her on occasion in a couple of her dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of arrests, and when asked, of course, uh, how often she had been arrested, demonstrations and the like, she famously answered, not often enough. Francis Crow is amazing. Let me turn, if I might. Can I say one more thing? Yeah, sure, please. So, I mean, Francis was also um, very active in making, uh, in getting democracy now on the airwaves uh, in the valley. She was. Uh, and in the early years, uh, before the internet um, and before uh, democracy now was on radio stations here, um, she was uh, instrumental with Ed Russell. Um, to essentially get uh, democracy now on the pirate wavelength here. Um, and so they, that, that was her commitment to getting alternative information, uh, that she was really committed to that. One of the things that she did at the media in the community room, and one of the reasons why we named it in her honor initially, was she had a, what became a very famous um, series on the a Friday night film series in which she showed amazing documentaries every Friday night and led discussions around them. And so we had a very close uh, connection with Frances, but also because of her commitment 
to getting information out and a commitment to knowing how important media reform was and how important media democracy was. Frances one Saturday was out on the streets of Northampton. She was distributing literature and some police officer told her to stop. And I happened to be come by about 10 minutes later. And of course, it was Frances, uh, all what, four foot eight of her maybe, is outraged, just outraged. And she tells me what's happened. She says, this can't happen, can it, Bill? Make it, make, fix this. I said, okay, Francis told me to go fix this. So I did. I went back to the office. I got on the phone. I called the police chief and said, whoa, do you know that some officer just told Francis Crow to stop distributing literature? He said, that would be bad with anybody. You just made a huge mistake. So could you call me back and tell me you fixed it? And about 10 minutes later, I get a call back. It says, uh, we are uh, begun the uh, educational process of the officer and Francis. <laughs> please tell Mrs. Crow she should feel free to go out and distribute her literature. She was amazing. So we have now in Northampton, or we will have as of this Sunday, November thirteenth at four o'clock, the Crow Speeder Nathan Room, Francis Crow, Greg Speeder, Marty Nathan. Uh, let me turn, if I might, to Betsy Speeder. Tell our listeners a bit about Greg, please, and what he did and what he's most famous for in his terms of his political activism and social justice uh, work? Well, I'll try, but just an, another word about Frances. Um, she certainly was peace royalty in every way and had a prodigious memory, always knew our children's names and so forth. But um, So Greg, uh, who was a big admirer of Frances Crow, he grew up in a he was the oldest of six kids, grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He came here in 1966 as a VISTA volunteer and was a community organizer. He started the Spanish American Union in Springfield and a number of other uh, organizations that are still in existence. And the reason I want to say that is because first, last, and always, Greg was a community organizer. No matter what job he took, and of course evolved into the NPP, and prior to that, CITP, Citizen Involvement Training Project. Which the National Priorities with, Project. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, the National Priorities Project. Um, and he, um, he just, he always used the word we. He never took credit directly. He always used the we, even though I knew, as his wife, and proud of him, that he was really the person that made it, made it happen. So I think it was, I was you know, he was, of course, the numbers guy and could tell you every single number all the time. I'm not, and I have trouble, I, I don't have trouble remembering events, so I have trouble remembering when they happened. But I believe it was 1982 that he did start the National Priorities Project. And he saw that as necessary to break down the federal budget, which, of course, as we all know, and if you've ever seen any of the pie charts around, they're all from NPP. I don't care what it says at the bottom, they're from NPP. And so he felt it was important that people, ordinary people, all of us, um, would understand, have greater transparency about that federal budget meant and where the money went, our tax dollars went. And of course, you know, I think we're up to around $800 billion in terms of uh, the military budget at this point in time. If not, if everybody wants to contradict those figures, it's because they don't, they're not including all the things that actually are part of the military. So anyway, so Greg had very little separation between his personal and his work life. I mean, he was an 80-hour-a-week kind of guy, but he gave it his all, and every once in a while he'd get discouraged, maybe for 10 minutes, and then he'd come back with an even greater idea of, of what to do. So, 
We are here with Betsy Speeder, who just been listening to uh, Sut Jolly and Elliot Fratkin. We are here because we want you to know about the commemoration this Sunday, November 13th at 4 o'clock at the Media Education Foundation, the dedication of the community meeting room in honor of Francis Crowe, Greg Speeder, and Marty Nathan. We'll be back in just a minute and we'll bring in Elliot Fratkin, spouse of the late Marty Nathan. They were married for 37 years. Marty, an indefatigable warrior for justice. We'll be right back. Yeah. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. You got more than you gave. And I wanted what I got. When you got skin in the game, you stay in the game. Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peel off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1415-1400-1240 WHMP. The music of John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane, made new by rising young jazz lioness Lakeisha Benjamin. Lakeisha Benjamin, a charismatic and dynamic young jazz sax player, brings her band to UMass November 17th. Benjamin's new album, Pursuance, The Coltrains, is an intergenerational masterwork, taking you on a journey through the lineage of jazz. Lakeisha Benjamin infuses the jazz tradition with touches of hip hop and soul producing soaring sonic adventures and dance floor-worthy rhythms and grooves. For tickets, UMass Fine Arts Center website. Don't miss this exciting exploration of the living art form that is jazz. The Lakeisha Benjamin Quartet, Thursday, November 17th, 7.30, Bowker Auditorium at UMass. 586-1000, good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this. But insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. I'm Sarah McEwen, the Nursing Director for Emergency and Ambulatory Services at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Community hospitals are the cornerstone of health, healing, and well-being for our local community. It's a privilege and a pleasure to take care of our community, of you and the people you love. During this season of thanks, the Cooley Dickinson team is grateful to the community that supports us through your kind words, generous gifts, and legacy plans. Please visit us at cooleydickinson.org giving. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Sut Jolly, 
Betsy Speeder and Elliot Fratkin. We are here because we want you to know about this event this Sunday, November 13th at 4 o'clock at the Media Education Foundation at the Meeting Room, the rededication of the Meeting Room at 60 Masonic Street here in Northampton, where we will be hearing from, among other people, Senator Joe Comerford. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the event, if you would, please, Sid? Uh, yeah, the event starts at four o'clock, and um, the room will be will be it'll be a very small kind of informal ceremony. <laughs> but I've asked Joe Comfort to come and speak and to dedicate the room uh, to the to the three of them because she worked very closely with all three. Um, at, I mean, in in in, in organizations, she worked with the American Friends Service Committee with with Francis for a long time, and then she was. The director uh, after Greg, I believe, of the National Priorities Project, uh, and worked on campaigns with uh, with Marty Nathan. And so I thought Joe would be the ideal person <laughs> to uh, to introduce all three. And given her given her connections to the area and given her connections to M- uh, to MEF as well, I also wanted to say when Betsy was you know talking and said you know Greg was the numbers guy, but what really uh, kind of drew drew me and drew MEF to to MPP and to Greg's work was we shared a commitment to translate work or to translate things that were kind of in a technical form into something that was more accessible and um, that, so that ordinary people could understand. And I think in that sense, um, I mean, you know, Greg had this educational aspect to the work that he did, which is he wanted to, he wanted to make the numbers real. <laughs> so that people could know exactly what was at stake. Because the federal budget is this gigantic thing that no one... But it's actually quite understandable, and Greg's one of Greg's gifts was to make it understandable and say, when you have when this is much is spent on the military, this is what is not spent. This is how many schools are not built. This is how many hospitals are not built. This is how many roads you know, that don't get built, and to make it in concrete in, in that way. And I think that's actually really really vital work. Could I just add, in terms of Greg's need to have all these visuals that. I remember one time he was going to D.C. and he had lined up a bank to have a certain number of pennies so that they would form a column so that he could, uh, you know, a sort of very hands-on exhibit that was similar to a pie chart or or another kind of chart. And the bank didn't have the pennies even though he'd requested them. So he's running around D.C. getting all these pennies, which are actually quite heavy because the next time... He got them here in Northampton, and he had to lug them on the plane. But he was always looking for visuals. He was always looking for museum kind of things prior to more advanced tech- technology. He, he needed to have people look at something so or make the comparisons that Bill just referenced in terms of how many schools, education, human need areas the, that the, um, the, the military budget was really taking away. Let me turn now, if I might, to Elliot Fratkin. Elliot was a, is a recently retired professor of anthropology at Smith. He was married to activist Dr. Marty Nathan for some 37 years. Marty passed uh, earlier this year in a great sadness for all of us and, of course, most especially for uh, Elliot and their family. Um, Elliot, tell our listeners who don't know much about Marty's activism, what it was. She, of course, one of the three people to whom the community meeting room is being dedicated this Sunday. Tell us about Marty. I will. <clears throat> you know, and also do I want to thank Soot and the Media Education Foundation because they make this offer, which is almost a permanent uh, 
tribute, so I really appreciate that. Marty was a medical doctor. She passed away at the age of 70 a year ago this month. Um, her whole life was dedicated to social activism, anti-race, social justice, anti-war, every struggle, women's march, she was, she was involved with from the get-go. Um, she was a survivor of the Greensboro Massacre in 1979, where five <coughs> anti-Klan activists were killed uh, on television, but no police anywhere to be seen. One, one of whom was her husband. One of whom was her husband, Michael. And so this is one of the earlier, most visible attacks of the right wing to, to happen in the United States, and it's still a beacon, if, you, if I can use that word, of, of this, this force that's out there. So we moved here in 1995, and Marty was working at the Bay State Hospital in Springfield, and her life is always dedicated to providing medical uh, services um, for, for poor people or people who didn't have access. She started something called La Clinicita, um, which was to provide free medical care or, or to, to immigrants mainly from Central America who were undocumented. And, and Bay State, her, her employer, footed a lot of that bill, which I'm glad to say. She um, immediately, upon moving here, both of us, um, we met Greg and we met Francis through the auspices of, of Archie Markham, another longtime activist who passed away at 102 just a few years ago. And um, so we were in touch with Joe Comerford when she was still in AFSC before she moved to NPP. And American Friends Service Committee, National Priorities Project. You're the man, Bill. Thank you. <laughs> and technically the Western Massachusetts office of AFSC That's at right. the time. Okay. That's right. Newman. Bill Newman is the uh, Greg Speeder of, of letters, <laughs> interpreting them for the general public. Thank you, Bill. And we do thank you. So this honor is, is not just for Marty, although it is, of course, but also for the, for the activists of Western Massachusetts, of whom she was in the center of. Um, whatever the struggle was, she'd be there. You'd see her at every demonstration. You know, my joke was I called her Megaphone Mike, like from Doonesbury, because she always had the megaphone in her hand. But she was a very wonderful, loving, people who knew her, just recall her smile. Um, and the people who worked with her recall her, her, her way she can negotiate different parties to come to agree about different things, which is a big deal in the left community. I've read about that sort of thing, an occasional division, and perhaps a disagreement of a point or two. But she was amazing that way. She was, too, a community organizer, and her activism, particularly in the last years of her life, around climate change and combating uh, the effects of climate change. And, of course, her column in the Gazette, one of the most widely read and quoted. Um, she was a force to be reckoned with, and she is so sorely missed. Let me turn back, if I might, to Sajali, uh, founder and executive director of the Media Education Foundation. Tell us just, if you would, please, a bit more about what you envision the room, the community meeting room, the Crow Speeder Nathan community meeting room, what it's being used for, and give us one more time the information with regarding the ceremony, the dedication ceremony, this Sunday at 4 o'clock. Sit. Um, the room, the room uh, holds uh, up to 50 people. So it's a, it's a pretty large space, uh, and it was used in the past for public events. People could, for, uh, for lectures, for talks, uh, to show films. 
but also for groups uh, doing their own organizing. Uh, it was a place where you could you could spend some time, two or three hours, and, and figure out what you were going to do uh, in the future. Uh, so it had a wide variety of uses, and I'm really hoping that it's going to have that same use again. Actually, I'm, I'm not really hoping. I, I know it will. I think people are actually desperate um, are desperate to uh, to meet again. We've had we've had some. We've I guess we've had a soft opening because <laughs> we've had some events there in the past already um, in the last few months. In fact, we've got one there today. There's a book signing or a, a book event uh, today. But we did have a soft opening a few weeks ago where we had um, Noam Chomsky uh, zooming in from Brazil and uh, Vijay Prashad in the room itself. <laughs> Uh, involved in a conversation. And so the new equipment in the room allows us to have these kind of hybrid events where we can bring people in from around the world and actually have someone in the room and have a conversation. So the room is equipped now with uh, some pretty nice new technology. Um, I have a, we've, we've put a permanent video camera in there, so it's going to be very easy to film events uh, taking place and to get them online uh, fairly quickly. Um, and again, the, the, I'm just trying to get word of it out because um, I think people are still, you know, people knew about it before, but they're not really aware that it's, it's opening up again. Um, and I think, I hope, I hope um, that the room will become uh, a center for activism um, in the way that it was before. The room dedication ceremony for the Media Education Foundation Community Meeting Room. The room will be named in honor of Francis Crowe, Greg Speeder, and Marty Nathan. The ceremony, the event, is this Sunday, November 13th at 4 o'clock at the Media Education Foundation, which is at 60 Masonic Street in Northampton. Joe Comerford will be giving remarks there that I'm sure you want to hear her share. It will be about the foundation of much of the activism here in the Valley today. We thank you all for being with us at Jolly. Betsy Speeder, Elliot Fratkin, thank you. Thank you for your spouses. Thank you for your work. Thank you for all that all three of you do for our community all the time. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Munson-Town official will serve two years of probation after being convicted of indecent assault and battery. Munson Water Department Assistant Superintendent Thomas J. Murphy was sentenced to two years probation and ordered to undergo a sex offender assessment and counseling. Murphy, a longtime youth soccer coach, was charged with groping a woman in her 20s after making salacious comments during an encounter in 2020. Murphy denied the charges. Valley Community Development is moving forward with their project to redevelop the Northampton Rehabilitation and Nursing Center on Bridge Street. The Northampton City Planning Board approved plans in recent weeks to turn the former nursing home into 60 affordable apartments and also approved $830,000 to remove asbestos from the building. Construction is anticipated to start in spring of 2024. Five Hampshire County communities and Holyoke will receive grants totaling more than $5.1 million from the state's Community One Stop for Growth grant program. Northampton and Amherst will each receive $1 million. Cummington, Belchertown, and East Hampton will also receive significant grants. The program funds economic development projects related to planning and zoning, site preparation, building construction, and infrastructure. 
And beginning May 3rd of next year, Americans over the age of 18 will need a Real ID compliant license to fly domestically. To obtain a Real ID, you will have to visit your local RMV to switch your ID over. The requirement has been set to begin for years in efforts to increase security measures after 9-11. I am Nick Oresco. After some patchy frost, mostly sunny and mild with temperatures in the low to mid 60s, increasing clouds tonight with lows in the low to mid 40s, rain and near 70 by Friday. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Hablando en una conferencia de prensa en la Casa Blanca, el presidente Joe Biden prometió trabajar con los republicanos y dijo que entendía que los votantes están frustrados a pesar de la campaña sorprendentemente competitiva de los demócratas. También reiteró su intención de postularse para la reelección en 2024 y dijo que tomaría una decisión final a principios del próximo año. La elección no alcanzó la victoria arrolladora que buscaban los republicanos, ya que los demócratas eludieron el tipo de dura derrota a mitad de periodo que a menudo afectó afecta a los presidentes en ejercicio de cualquier partido. Los resultados sugirieron que los votantes estaban castigando a Biden por presidir una economía afectada por la inflación más pronunciada en 40 años con un 8.2%, al tiempo que criticaron los esfuerzos republicanos para prohibir el aborto y sembraron dudas sobre el proceso de conteo de votos de la nación. Los malos desempeños de algunos candidatos respaldados por Donald Trump indicaron agotamiento con el tipo de caos fomentado por el expresidente republicano, lo que generó dudas sobre la viabilidad de su posible candidatura a la Casa Blanca en 2024. En otras informaciones y como parte del proceso de asfaltado y mejoras a la calle High en Holyoke, la ciudad anunció que esta calle continuará estando cerrada al tránsito vehicular este jueves 10 de noviembre desde la calle Essex hasta la calle Lyman, en horario de 6 de la mañana a 5 de la tarde. Durante este cierre no habrá estacionamiento de vehículos ni tránsito en la calle. La ciudad ha pedido que se remuevan los vehículos y que el público se mantenga al pendiente de señalizaciones que marcarán desvíos y rutas alternas. Durante esta etapa final se estará completando el trazado de líneas sobre High Street. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This is our Reverend and the Rabbi segment, which today is the Rabbi and the Reporter. We have with us Ricky Kozowski, who is the Rabbi at Beit HaVah, the Reform Synagogue here in Northampton, and Tovo Lazaroff, who is a reporter and managing editor indeed for the Jerusalem Post, who happens to be in the United States for a sojourn here. The, the Headline in today's New York Times, ruinous electoral failure has Israel's left groping for a vision and a future. Here is a sentence or two from that story. This is a quote from a uh, resident of a uh, kibbutz in Israel who said after the election, I felt like someone punched me in the gut. In the bottom of my heart, I feel that we are doomed. The story goes on to say Israel's Jewish-led left-leaning parties, long the standard bearers for negotiations with the Palestinians, suffered a near wipeout in the elections, accelerating a long-term decline that has kept them from the prime minister's office for more than two decades. 
Let me start with you, if I might, Tova Lazaroff. You are obviously a keen observer and reporter on politics in Israel. Tell us about the election and what it portends for the future, please. Okay. Um, well, I think I want to take, I, I just want to dispute a little bit what the New York Times said, because I think sometimes we tend to think that governments are overly reflective of a populate of you know the population for example if you want to look at the midterm elections right now in the united states right really whether the republicans control you know um the house and the senate has been hanging on a very thin thread so sometimes you can have a country that's evenly split along um sort of left and right democratic or republican voters but when it all plays out it leans more heavily on one side. So in the way that you might have, you know, if you had like five states in which um, the the states went Republican by a very thin majority, it might look like 30 states went Republican and only, tw- and only 20 went Democrat, and that would be reflective. But when you looked at the popular vote, it would be more like 50-50. And one of the things about this election in particular is that the popular vote was actually fairly split between left and right. But because the threshold is, you know, set at a certain amount of seats, which is four for any party to come in, and because of strategic decisions that the left made, which were which turned out not to be so advantageous, they lost a lot of votes. And that gave the right wing parties much more say. And so now you're looking at now you're looking at, you know, an all right wing slate. I will just say one other thing because I see you about to interrupt me, which is that we're still in the middle of the process, right? Netanyahu, who used to be prime minister, and it is now again poised to become prime minister, he now has to negotiate with three parties and come to agreements with them before you can actually say that this deal is done. Okay, the deal being done, as I understand it, is the prime minister, that is, the of the Knesset, uh, Israel's parliament, and the three parties that are going to come together to form the government. Uh, one of them is an extreme right-wing party, and I'm wondering if that gives that party veto power over the governance of Israel and the government of Israel, and because that's the, why, that's the impression that's certainly being uh, fostered by the mainstream media here in the United States, and I'm wondering whether that's accurate, and if it is accurate, what does it mean for Israel going forward? I'm saying that's what we still don't, that's what we still don't know yet. That is, that is the part that has yet to be determined, is how much veto power they really will have in this government, and you will see that by the coalition agreement that is going to get worked out. In other words, if they get if they get a lot of their demands, right, then yes, you know, effectively they have veto power. If they are willing to cede, then then again, they will have much less veto power. If you, if you will, Merits sat in the last government, but never exercised that veto power, so to speak. Um, it, it isn't, it isn't always I'm not telling you not to be nervous about them. I'm saying that you're two steps away from that conclusion. 
All right. Well, one last question as we go down this road, and then I want to uh, turn to uh, Rabbi Ricky Kozowski. But if the right wing has this significant uh, influence, and I think that's putting it mildly, over the government of Israel today, does that mean that all prospects for uh, some kind of settlement uh, between uh, Israel and the Palestinian authorities, it's gone dead a long, long time between now and resurrection and have any prospects for peace? Is that simply reality? I think you got here because you didn't have a peace process. You got here because we were already in that place, right? We don't have, the United States has not put forward a peace process. It is not initiated one. It talks about two states, but it doesn't have one. Um, Lapid went to the UN, he talked about two states, but then said he wouldn't meet with the bus. If you will, like before you get to the election, the left hadn't put forward its own independent vision. Labor had made this whole thing. They were going to unveil their, 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 you know, their new peace process. I'm putting that in quotes. This was during the elections. And then they held that meeting behind closed doors. Like, how are you initiating a peace process if your very platform is behind closed doors? So, you know, I think you already weren't there. And that's why you have this government. This government will make it much harder, but it wasn't happening before. We are speaking with the managing editor of the Jerusalem Post. Deputy Tova. managing editor. Sorry, deputy, deputy, managing, deputy editor. managing editor of the Jerusalem Post. There is a managing editor and the deputy managing editor. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> we also have with us Rabbi Ricky Kozowski from Beta Hava in Florence. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how the politics of Israel affect the Jewish community here in the United States and more specifically here in the Valley. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. The Snow Farm Craft Second Sale is live this Friday through Sunday. Shop the work of over 200 artists in glass, ceramics, clothing, jewelry, and more. All at great prices. The artists may think they're seconds, but you'll never know. Shop local and handmade. And support Snow Farm and the artists. Reserve a shopping time in advance to limit large groups. Three weekends start this Friday from 10 to 4 in Williamsburg. The Snow Farm Second Sale. For details and reservations, go to snowfarm.org. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sauteed to perfection, including kale. 
or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this. But insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Tova Lazaroff. Lazaroff, who is the deputy managing editor of the Jerusalem Post and Rabbi Ricky Kozowski from Beta Hava here in Florence. Rabbi, we were talking uh, in the first segment about the politics of Israel and what the government will be and what policies it will pursue and whether or not there are any prospects for peace. And although there are enormous uh, divisions among uh the Jewish communities in the United States in terms of uh, their relationship and their perspective on Israel. There is a strong relationship, to be sure, between Israel and the American Jewish community. And I'm wondering how you, as a rabbi, navigate and negotiate those uh, divisions, in these political divisions, uh, not only with regard to Israel's politics, but about the spectrum of politics here in the United States. How do you go about how do you go about navigating that and leading your congregation at the same time? Well, thank you, Bill. That's a great question and a very complex question. Um, and I'm also really grateful to my good friend Tova Lazaroff with us this morning. Thank you for joining us, Tova. Um, well, I think uh, on the one hand, I should just in full disclosure, my synagogue is a very leftist, liberal, progressive synagogue community at Beta Hava, the Reform Synagogue of Greater Northampton. And in general, I think the Jewish community of uh, Northampton and the Upper Valley is very left-leaning and progressive. So I personally do not often have... Um, you know, like for instance, to my knowledge, I, we don't have any Trump supporters in my congregation, just as an example. And um, the political divides are are usually not something, you know, they, they've never caused a rift among, between members. I, I'll say that. And if they did, I'm sure we would find a way to talk about it peacefully or some way to talk about it. But I do know many of my colleagues who live uh, not even that far out and certainly across the country, they, you know, they really do navigate. Um, so that being said, I Israel tends to be the sticking point, I would say, within the Jewish community, perhaps more locally, because there are, you know, certainly different streams. You know, we have we have Jews who define themselves as anti-Zionist. We have Jews who define themselves as progressive Zionists. Certainly I'm in that, 
you know, that's sort of how I, I approach Israel political, political and social change. Um, and, you know, and, I'm, and the other voices are not probably as loud locally, but I will say i I'm personally, um, I think it's really important as a rabbi to speak out about my views on Israel and when I'm upset with something that Israel is doing, uh, as well as to hold up and lift up those voices of people who are working on the left and who are working for change and who are involved in the Israel-Palestine peace movement or movement for women's rights or LGBTQ rights or asylum seeker rights in Israel, Bedouin rights certainly. I think it was the very first thing I did was bring uh, the rights of Bedouin Israeli rights to the forefront of a program that I did like over 15 years ago when I first came here. That was something that I was very involved with then, still am. But um, and um, I just think it's really important, and especially in this new election, I think you know I think it's impo it's really important that we remember, like similar to what Tova was saying, like all of Israel is not right wing. Like this particular government that's going to that will form in some way or another. I think is 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 an extremely dangerous right wing government that spouts um, racist policies, and we have to speak out about that. But we also have to partner in coalition and make sure we know who are the partners in Israel and Palestine who are working on the left and who need the support from the American Jewish liberal community. If anything, that's that's like something that we can lift up like that. You know, we have an organized liberal Jewish community here. We can help support the organized Jewish liberal community there to be better organized and more effective. Do you see the possibility of Israel remaining a Jewish state and at the same time remaining a democracy? And I'd like to give you both about a minute on that question. Right. What, yes. do you, what do you say? All right. Mm -hmm. I would say that I have to believe that it's totally possible. And I think, you know, I, I couldn't wake up in the morning if I didn't believe it was possible and if I didn't believe it was worth fighting for. Um, I mean, I'm beside myself, too, thinking about these horrible elections um, that just trans that just happened in Israel. I mean, I just want to point out uh, there's other issues besides the Israel-Palestine issue. There are eight women who are going to be in the um, Knesset, eight uh, in, in in out of sixty five seats, there's eight in um, there. There will be women in, in. Am I getting that right, Toba? That's an article that I read. Hope, Toba will correct me if I'm wrong. And you know, it's like such an abysmal nine. small. Sorry, nine. Oh, now it's nine. nine. Okay, nine. I mean, it's just it's it's horrifying. It's something. It's like under thirteen. It's like thirteen percent or so are women that are going to be representing, you know, in the in Israel's Knesset. Um, you know, there are so there are many other problems and that need to be addressed like that number has never been that low at least not recently um but yes i do believe that israel can should and will be a democratic and jewish can be a homeland of the jews and can be a democratic state that affords civil rights and liberties to all its inhabitants and can create a lasting peace with its palestinian neighbors and it's a long road and it's emotional and it's so so hard and complex but um but it has to be that in order for it to succeed and exist, in my opinion. Well, let me turn right. back to Tova Lazaroff from the Jerusalem Post. We have just a minute left, but I would like the bottom line, big picture from your perspective, Tova, please. Can Israel remain a Jewish state and also be a democracy? I mean, I think that's always the question, but right now it is both. It is an ethnic nationalist democracy, right? Right now, everybody has the right to vote. 
and right now everybody has the right to be in the government and everybody I mean that everybody that is a citizen and that citizenry includes both the Jews and Arabs and so you know the question is how much change can this government put in place and how how you know and and what is the impact and I think there you're looking at one of the biggest issues is the whole question of a legislative override because in much like in the United States it's you know it's there's the there's the parliament right and there's the courts and right now the courts have the ability to say that any law that's passed is not is is you know doesn't meet the basic law and the and the basic law is there to protect the um in the nature of the state is both a, Jew, a jewish and a democratic state we're gonna have we're gonna have to leave it there i hate to interrupt tova lazara from the jerusalem post ricky kozowski rabbi beta Hava. thank you both so very much for your perspective we'll continue this conversation in future shows this is bill newman whmp Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is going back to traditions here. Uh, this is Port Eskeg, eight-year-old single malt scotch. So it's actual scotch? This is Scotland scotch, scotchy scotch scotch. This is an Isla single malt, peatier in style. This one does not suffer supply chain issues because you wouldn't be giving it to us if it did, right? Correct. It says Port Eskeg, which is a location, but it's an independent bottler that gives them their whiskey. Because there's so many different approaches on whiskey, I really try and hit everything with a very open mind as far as what can be good. This one got 95 points at the, the Ultimate Spirits Challenge. I think this is very good. And how much is this single mall? This is $66.99, so it's kind of right in that low to mid-entry level price point. Find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at State Street. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.